in the very last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, as we're continuing in our sermon series, Name Above All Names, in which we have looked at several places throughout Scripture where Jesus Christ is given a title or a name. And we have been kind of in a study, if you will, of the different characteristics of Christ that such names and titles reveal about Him. And this morning, we are seeing that Christ, when He comes in His glory, is given the name, the title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Now, for some of us, if we think about it very long, and we think about the the name King or the title King or the office of King, there might be an uneasy kind of feeling inside of us. After all, we as an American society are and have been since our foundation far removed from a monarchy. It's something that we don't understand. It's something that maybe at a certain existence inside of us recoils within us, or we recoil from the notion of a king. And when we think about Jesus Christ coming and being the king above all kings, it's something that we must seek to understand And something that we must ultimately, if we are to surrender to Christ, accept. Because the truth of the matter is, it won't take you very long, even as children. You put a bunch of children in a room for very long. And you leave them unsupervised. One of them is going to attempt to rise up and be the bossy one, right? He's going to be the leader. He's going to start telling kids what they can and cannot do. And inevitably, what are the other children in the room going to do? Who died and made you king? Right? Who set you up? Who gave you the authority to do this? We see the same thing in adults. Just hop on TikTok or YouTube or any of them, and you'll find it was just this past week I saw a video of a bunch of guys who were in a yelling match with some federal officers over whether or not they had to actually provide a photo ID and identify themselves to these officers or as they were standing up for their rights and their freedoms. We reject being ruled. We reject being told what to do because we are a society that values freedom and autonomy. And submission is seen as weakness in every area of our society. We are a democratic people. And we, in part, are this because as C.S. Lewis explains... The truth of the matter is authority is something that is, and power is something that should not and cannot be entrusted to any one single individual. And so C.S. Lewis himself articulated that a diversified power structure is the best thing in an imperfect period when human beings who are broken and fallen and untrustworthy cannot be trusted with ultimate and absolute authority. And I agree that now in this time, which is imperfect, the system of democracy is the best system for governance of a broken and sinful and untrustworthy people. But what we must understand is that these imperfect times are coming to an end. And when these imperfect times come to an end and the perfect comes... This system that works now must give way to a system that is ultimate. And a monarchy that will rise which will suffer no rivals. And in sharing 
his vision of Christ's return in Revelation 19, John issues a warning to each and every one of us that surrender, submission to Christ is the only way to stand with Christ in the end. Though we draw our title and our focus from verse 16, we're going to read 11 through 21 this morning. John says, Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe, dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun. And with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God, to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their mighty armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse, and all the birds were gorged with their flesh. Merry Christmas to you. Would you pray with me this morning? Lord Jesus, you are Emmanuel, God with us. You are Prince of Peace, the one who accomplished peace by your death on the cross and who will administer peace and is administering peace through the spread of the gospel. And you will one day reign As the administrator of peace and of your government, there shall be no end. You, Lord Jesus, are the Son of God, the rightful ruler of all of God's people in a unique relationship with God who is the fulfillment of all of his promises. Lord Jesus, you are faithful and true, the one who is worthy to sit as judge because you cannot be bribed, you cannot be broken, you cannot be ignored, you cannot be untrue, false, or unfaithful. Lord Jesus, you are truly worthy of our worship. But not only that, you are worthy of our submission because there is no one greater than you. There is no rule higher than your own. There is no authority more final than yours. There is no victory apart from you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen. As we have walked through Scripture, we saw some passages that anticipated the arrival of Jesus as that baby born in Bethlehem, that he would be Emmanuel, God with us, that he would be the Prince of Peace, the Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father. 
We saw Jesus coming that he had this unique relationship with the Father as the Son of God, the fulfillment of all of God's promises to David and all of his people throughout the Old Testament. Last week, we saw in these same verses as a bit of review that Jesus Christ is faithful and true, the one who is given the authority and the only one who has a right to the authority to serve as judge over humanity, partly because we saw he had accepted the judgment for humanity as the one who was our substitute. But this morning, as we come to the end of the book of Revelation, near or near the end, and we see Jesus coming in his power and his might and his glory, we see him crowned King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And in some small way, this is kind of a title that summarizes or reviews all of those other titles that we just talked about. That as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, he is Emmanuel and Prince of Peace and the Son of God and the faithful and true judge of the world. And as we look at Jesus coming in his power and in his ultimate victory, John, in his vision, as we see Christ as King of kings and Lord of lords, is giving us that warning that I said earlier, that surrender to Christ is the only way to stand with Christ when this day comes. And we as human beings must yield ourselves to the authority, to the supremacy, to the person of Jesus Christ and Christ alone. As we look through this passage of Scripture, there are a few things that I'd like to highlight in John's vision of Jesus Christ. This is not merely a vision of a battle. It's not merely the vision of armies and end times and everything else. The revelation that is given to John is a revelation of a person, not necessarily simply events that are yet to come. Is the revelation of Jesus Christ that was given to John. And so in this moment, what we see is some truths about Jesus as he appears in the sky. We see first and foremost Christ's supremacy over all of the earth. The very title, King of Kings and Lord of Lords, is not a title that the people in John's day would have not been familiar with. It was a title that they would have heard before. It was a title that was taken up by the kings of Persia and Babylon and Assyria, even in the Old Testament. Because if you'll remember with Alexander the Great and Artaxerxes and all of these other rulers, as they conquered other kingdoms and swallowed them up inside of their empire, they became a king over kings. And so they would carry with them this title that indicated their supremacy their sovereignty over their realm and their ultimate authority in that realm as well. But in this title, and as we see throughout the rest of Scripture, we see that Jesus' supremacy is derived from somewhere, not just necessarily his actions, but again, his relationship as with God, as the Son of God, and as Emmanuel. Because all the way back in Deuteronomy chapter 17, Moses says this, Yahweh, your God, is God of gods and Lord of lords, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God who is not partial and takes no bribes. All the way back in the Old Testament, in one of the earliest books of the Bible, God is referenced as God of gods and Lord of lords. In his vision in uh, the book of Daniel, Daniel says, the king answered and said to Daniel, truly your God is God of gods and Lord of kings and a revealer of mysteries, for you have been able to reveal this mystery. 
Even a pagan king recognized in the authority and the power that God had displayed on behalf of Daniel and his friends that the God that Daniel worshipped was unique. God over other gods. Lord over lords. There is no ultimate, ultimately in all of the universe, there is no higher authority than God who created the earth, who created the universe, who is intimately involved in every aspect of our world and of our existence. And he is a God that we find out throughout Scripture who actually establishes kings and kingdoms. Earlier in Daniel chapter 2, It says that God changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. Paul reiterates this in Romans chapter 13, verse 1. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. The truth of the matter is, every position of power, every kingdom, every throne, every White House, every legislative body, it is all an authority that is ultimately derived from God, who is the authority over all things, and all is subject to Him, and therefore God alone is the one who has the authority to dole out reign and ruling. And He gives that, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2, to His Son. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There's no president. There is no king. There is no priest. There is no one in this world who will not Bow the knee to Christ. He's given a name that is above them all, a renown that is above them all, but his position is above them as well, such that there is no higher rule than the rule of Jesus Christ. He fulfills all of the promises that were given to David as God establishes an eternal, everlasting throne on which his son, Jesus Christ, sits as the heir to the throne of David. But we see it specifically in this passage of Scripture, not only in the title that is given to Jesus, but the fact that when John sees Jesus, Jesus, he sees Jesus wearing many diadems. Now, most likely what we think about when we think of a diadem, we shouldn't necessarily think of a big crown like the Queen of England would wear. But instead, in these ancient Middle Eastern cultures, when a king would overthrow another king or another kingdom, he would take kind of like a little ringlet and he would stack them on top of each other. So as the king would wear these multiple ringlets on his head, each one represented a nation that he had conquered and over which he was the king. King above all kings. And so Jesus Christ is one with many of these diadems on his head. It's a sign of his rule, but it also stands in contrast and condemnation of every fake and feeble attempt to mimic the rule of the Messiah, especially as you read earlier in the book of Revelation, the feeble attempts to rule over humanity that are brought about by the dragon, which is Satan, and the beast, which is the Antichrist. In Revelation chapter 12, verse 3, John says, Another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head, seven diadems. Revelation 13, 1. 
I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And throughout these last several chapters of the book of Revelation, we see kings rise and fall and kings submit themselves to the rule and reign of Satan and his beast and his false prophet. But they have seven diadems and ten diadems, whereas John sees Jesus with all of the diadems. And the fake and feeble attempt of Satan and the beasts to mock the reign and the rule of Jesus Christ finds itself empty when the real king is revealed. It takes me all the way back to that moment in Christ's ministry when he is sent into the desert, led into the desert by the Holy Spirit, and he is tempted by Satan. And one of Satan's temptations is, if you would just bow to me, I will make you ruler over everything that you can see. And Jesus refused the temptation knowing that God would give him a rule not only over everything he could see with his human eyes, but everything he couldn't as well. And so the message in this is to the believer in Jesus Christ because the book of Revelation is written to believers to encourage them to hold fast to the faith, to conquer, to be those who regardless of how dark and desperate the times may get, hold firm to the faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Because as you read through this and you see the world getting darker and darker and you see the authority and the power of both Satan and his beast and his false prophet and you see the nations getting dark and you see the persecution of the church and you see all of the depth of despair that is brought about by the worst times in history and the plagues, you see these kingdoms rise and they are threats to the church who silence the church and who martyr the believers. And John is writing to say, All of that authority that you see and may fear is an authority that will be wiped away in an instant when Jesus Christ returns. So do not be afraid of them. Do not be afraid of what happens in election times and transitions of power. Do not be afraid at wars and rumors of wars and all of the darkness and disease and plagues We need not be afraid because we are with a king, if we are in Christ, whose authority is over all of that. So take heart and take hope in the king who is supreme. But not only do we see Christ's supremacy, we also see Christ's authority. You see, as John looks out, he sees that that Jesus is the king of kings who will suffer no rivals. And in suffering no rivals, he is the one who will come. And it's those who are with him who will ultimately share in his victory, and those who stand against him will suffer his wrath. John says that Jesus Christ in this passage of Scripture in verse 15 is one who will rule or who will shepherd his people with a rod of iron. Do you ever have to go out as a kid because you were in trouble and pick your own switch? And if you got one that was a little bit too thin, what did grandma do? Go get another one. Because the last thing that we're going to do is punish you with a switch that ain't working. Right? Maybe you were one of those clever kids that you ran into your room real quick and stuffed some extra underwear under there so that you wouldn't quite feel it, right? But the rod that is given to Jesus Christ isn't a switch. It's not something malleable and simply uh, ornate like gold. 
The rod that is given to Jesus Christ is a rod of iron. Iron shatters. It is not shattered. And this is a fulfillment of what God promised all the way back in Psalm 2. As he said, I will tell of the decree. The Lord, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. When we see Christ in all of his authority, what we see is Christ with, with the authority to rule and reign. His supremacy is not like the monarchy in England, which is really only supported but has no real authority to rule and make decisions. Instead, Jesus Christ's supremacy as the king of the universe is one that comes with real authority to make real decisions and enact them. And what we saw last week is that Jesus is the one who is faithful and true. And what we see Jesus coming in in this moment is not a moment of grace and mercy and salvation, but a moment of judgment and war. As he wipes the face of the earth clean of his enemies, he is worthy to do so because he is faithful and true. And in this passage of Scripture, we see him meeting out the judgment of God with a reign and a rule and an unbreakable rod of iron as he treads out the winepress of God's fury and wrath against sin and those who remain rebellious and resistant and hardened in their sin. And when John sees Jesus Christ on this horse, he sees him clothed, verse 13, in a robe that is dipped in blood. And there's a lot of debate between pastors and theologians and commentators about where did this blood come from? Because we see him in heaven before he enters into battle. So the question is, is this blood that is on the robe of Jesus Christ his own blood as he bore the judgment for the sin of the world? Or is this blood that is sprinkled upon his robe the blood of his enemies as a sign and a guarantee of his impending and unwaverable victory? The answer is we don't know. Good arguments can be made either way. And when we understand that, and though our temptation is to want a firm and fast answer, we find that Jesus is not above leaving us in moments of tension. Because in moments of tension, we are left with the reality that in not knowing whose blood this is, we ask the question, is this blood then for those who are with Christ, purified and cleansed by his blood, who are given white horses of their own and linens that are pure and white from being washed in his blood? Or is it the blood of the enemies later on in verses 17 through 20 who will be defeated by a word from his mouth and who will be left in such a way that their flesh is to be gorged upon by the birds of the air. The truth of the matter is, there are only two sides in the coming war in which Christ will be victorious. And we will either be with him, or we will stand against him. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22 says, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood, and without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Whether this blood is his, or this blood is the blood of his enemies, that truth remains. Sins are only forgiven by the shedding of blood. 
And the question that the tension of whose blood that is on Christ's robe leaves to each and every single one of us is the question, will that be Christ's blood for me? Or will that be my blood for me? Because it will only be one or the other. Because we will only be on the side with Christ coming in his power and victory, or we will be those who stand against Christ and suffer his wrath. And surrendering to him is the only way. Submitting to him is the only way that we can be assured that the blood on his robes is his for us and not ours for our sin. And so Christ calls us, and the gospel invites each and every one of us to stop even this moment and take heart and take stock. Is my faith and my trust and my life in the hands of Jesus, or am I still trying to do it on my own? Because the truth of the matter is, brothers and sisters, every sin that we commit in and of itself is a rebellion against good God. It's a decision, whether conscious or subconscious, to say, God, my way is better than your way. And every sin must be dealt with. And it will either be dealt with by Christ's death on the cross or my eternity of damnation in hell. And the hope that we have is that Jesus hasn't split the sky just yet. And so the time of grace and mercy is still upon us. And the invitation of Scripture is in anticipation of this day, would you surrender and submit to Jesus Christ alone for your salvation? to trust in His work on the cross, to wash away and forgive you of all of your sins, to rely upon His everlasting life as He was raised again from the dead, to clothe you in His righteousness and guarantee you an everlasting life in His presence and adopt you as sons and daughters of God. It's not too late. As Jesus comes, and it's when we do this, surrender to Christ as Lord and Savior. Submit to Him as King that we are then able to stand with Christ in His victory. And so John explains and shows us the victory of Jesus Christ. As Jesus appears, even from the very beginning, as one seated upon a white horse. That wouldn't have been a symbol that was foreign to these people either. Because especially these early Christians, as they were living under the dominion of Rome, were used to the military display of victory as generals and kings, after a military victory, would parade through towns with the king or the emperor or the Caesar or the general who had won the victory seated upon a white horse. Maybe you've seen that movie, The Gladiator. And at the very beginning of the movie, The Gladiator, as the Roman army defeats the barbarians, Caesar and Maximus come back riding upon white horses as a display of their victory. Even before Jesus goes into battle, he is on a white horse. And all of those who are with him are on white horses as well. As they receive a victory that they have not accomplished on their own, but which was accomplished for them. And Jesus comes, and upon his coming, the enemies of Christ, the dragon and the beast and the false prophet, verse 20, they bring together all of the kings of the earth in an attempt to beat him back and to wage war upon Christ who descends. 
And this anticipated ultimate battle is over with a word. It's anticlimactic. Because in the face of all of their physical strength, in all of their power, they can fling as many nuclear bombs and bullets and victory formations that they can possibly hurl at Jesus Christ, and none of them stands a chance. Verse 20, the beast was captured, with it the false prophet, who had done all of these amazing signs which had deceived the peoples into receiving the mark of the beast. They're captured and they're thrown alive into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur. And in just a moment after this battle is done, even the serpent itself, the devil, Satan, is wrapped up by angels and thrown into a bottomless pit, chapter 20, and captured and held there for a thousand years. None of them stand a chance against the supreme King of kings and Lord of lords. And it's Christ's victory that makes a way for the coming kingdom that we all long for. A kingdom characterized by peace and hope and love and joy. A place where death will ultimately be, de be defeated, where disease will be no more, where all that is wrong will be made right because the Lord and the Lamb reign supreme. And that's what we find in chapters 20 and 21. Because of his victory over sin and death on the cross, his victory over every human institution that would stand opposed to him, we find our hope in Jesus Christ. And we have reason to rejoice, no matter how dark the days may get, that that day is still to come. And so the invitation and the warning from John is that to be a part of that coming kingdom, we must be those who have submitted ourselves to Jesus Christ alone. Because it's surrender to Christ. It's the only way we're ever going to stand with Christ when this day comes. You know, despite our reservations and that, that guttural response that recoils from the notion of a king ruling over me, I'm shocked at how often the human imagination still longs for it. Sarah and I started a new TV show just last night, and it's a story about the threat of an evil that is coming and the promise of a long-lost empress who's going to be the one who, when found and supported, overthrows the evil and establishes a kingdom that will never end. And that got me to thinking, that's a, such a common theme. We see it in Christian authors like J.R.R. Tolkien in The Return of the King. As there's this long-lost king who has disappeared, who has the power to overthrow the ultimate evil of Sauron when he takes the throne and the armies of men will rally around him and in which he will then establish a glorious golden age. We see the same thing in C.S. Lewis in the Chronicles of Narnia and the long-lost king of Aslan and then in the Prince Caspian who is the rightful ruler of the thrones of Narnia. 
But it's not just in Christians. I remember growing up and watching that old Disney Fox cartoon of Robin Hood. And the reminder that King John in all of his evil and wickedness sitting on the throne is easily overcome and overthrown with the return of King Richard. And Robin Hood is holding out fast. Even King Arthur itself is the same story about a king who will rise and establish a realm in which there is justice and fairness and righteousness that rules and people are safe. And there's a Lion King. As Scar overthrows the rightful king and is sitting in evil and the land goes to destitution until Simba returns. And overthrows him. And all the lions come out and they roar in the rain. And everything that's wrong is right again. And despite our recoiling from the reality that there is something true and something good about a king who is right and righteous, who sits on the throne and ensures that peace is administered across his land as we stand in these places of selfishness and self-centeredness and a trust and dependence upon only me and to fight for my rights and democracy. Nevertheless, there is something inherent in the human imagination and spirit that longs to be ruled by the right king, to be protected by the right king, to rally around the right king. That right king is Jesus. And he is coming again to establish his reign. Will you surrender to him today? Will you live a life in submission and trust in Him no matter how dark and difficult tomorrow may be? No matter how dark and difficult November of 2024 may be? No matter how dark and difficult 2030, 2040, 2050 may get? Will you trust in Jesus? Will you trust in in the kingdom that's not yet here. But the king who has been given all authority in heaven and on earth and who promises to be with us even to the end of the age.